The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, hello, let's get started. I'm very excited about today's show. Excited because it's a bit of an unknown for me. I don't know exactly where we're going to go. You know, so many times when we've done these, what have we done? About 100 of the, 125 something of these, and many of them have guests, and that's always fun. There's always a surprise in there. I don't know what the guests are going to say. We have some more of those in the works, of course, including with our old friend Mike, the president, who's going to be coming on to talk about this very topic that we're discussing today, animals in literature. But there are a lot of shows where it's just me and the microphone, and frankly, I tend to go through topics that are not new to me. There are things I've been thinking about for years, sometimes decades, or it's a book I've read a long time ago, and now I've reread it, but I kind of know what I think before I even get started talking about it. This one is different. This is a subject that's been right there all this time, incognito, at least to me, animals in literature. Animals in literature. I've never really thought about this before. But there we go. It's there. It's a fascinating idea. How have animals been used in literature? How do they appear? What do they do? What does it matter? To us. Remember why this show interests me? It's about literature, of course, but in some ways, I don't give a damn about literature or history, for that matter. That's the dirty little secret of this show. It's called The History of Literature. Don't give a damn about history. Don't give a damn about literature. So, so what's left of? <laughs> don't really give a damn about that either. No, I care about literature because it's about life. I care about life about people who are trying to get by, trying to find some inspiration, trying to find some beauty, trying to find some love. I love the creative process, the act of creativity. So I love writers toiling away, looking for that spark. I love what they come up with. And I love readers opening the pages of their books, looking for stories, looking for connections. It seems like we're a long way from animals, except to say that animals are a part of our world, a huge part. Except sometimes now they can go forgotten here in our urban landscapes. For those of us who live in cities, they're somewhat ornamental sometimes. And that is the way that that carries through to literature. You could read a lot of books without seeing any animals at all, especially if you don't count food or the occasional pet. But the animal kingdom is fascinating. It's rich and diverse, and there is so much there for thinking people, thoughtful people to engage with. How have authors done this? I've never really thought about this until now, so here's what we're going to do today. First, I'm going to read an email which sent me on this path. Then I'll give some thoughts about animals in literature which I have been really digging into for the past few weeks. And I will also read a story I wrote, an essay, which was about my experience with the animal kingdom back when I was a blogger. 
And then we'll stop there. I'm going to save a few things, a few thoughts, because Mike and I are going to do a draft on the best animals in literature. So I don't want to talk about too many of my picks in too much detail or step on his toes and talk about all of his choices. (laughs) Okay, enough of a preview. Let's start with the email. Oh, excuse me. There's someone knocking at the door. Yes. Hello. Hmm. Hello. This is Bartleby. The Scrivener. Ah, Bartleby the Scrivener. You might know me from the story by Herman Melville called... Bartleby... The Scrivener. Yes, I have. I became famous for my catchphrase, (laughs) I would prefer not to. So when that irritating chatterbox Jack Wilson asked me to contribute to his podcast, I replied that I would prefer not to. Mm. Then he asked me not to make a small monthly contribution. Well, naturally, I preferred not to not do that. So I signed up. (sighs) (laughs) Won't you please join me in not not donating to the podcast? (laughs) (sighs) Ah, Bartleby the Scrivener, aren't you a little harsh? Bartleby, the irritating chatterbox Jack Wilson. Well, there he is, preferring not to do things. You know, I kind of hate you, Bartleby. (laughs) I used to love you. I loved the idea of the narrator in the Herman Melville story, put to his limits by this guy who was refusing to do anything, the mystery of it, the oddity. Well, I've changed. Maybe it's because I'm a parent now. You're not being cute, Bartleby. Why don't you engage with life? Who am I kidding? I still love the story. In any case, Bartleby has signed up. I got him to sign up through that little trickery of mine, asking him not to support the show, which he preferred not to not do. Well, you heard what Bartleby had to say. With you, dear listener, I'm not going to play games. I'll just ask if you can help us out, if you can. If you can't, that's fine. It's free for you, and it will be forever, hopefully. But if you can throw a few bucks our way, we would surely appreciate it. This isn't free. And we could use some help. You can do that in a couple of different ways. You can head over to patreon.com slash literature, where you can sign up with a credit card or PayPal account for a small monthly donation, starting as low as a dollar a month, or five bucks a month if you want to give us a dollar a show, roughly, or if a one-time donation is more your preference. I almost said, if that's your thang. But preference is the right word, right? We're on the Bartleby theme, if that's your thing. Maybe that should be the new Bartleby. Instead of, I prefer not to, he could just say, that's not my thing. (laughs) Should be Bartleby. There should be remakes of stories, the way songs and movies have remakes. We could remake Bartleby. (sighs) Off track again. Anyway, if one-time donations are what you prefer not to not do, if they're your thing then head on over to historyofliterature.com slash shop where you can buy me a virtual coffee, which is a way of expressing your thanks through a PayPal or a credit card account, giving as much as you care to give, and to all my patrons and purchasers, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thang. Thang you. Thanking you 
is my thing. Okay. Onward to the email. helps set the mood because this is a sad one. You may recall the joyous email we got from listener Christina in which we heard the bad poem about the cat in honor of the bad poetry episode and her cat while Christina wrote with some sad news. Subject, cat died. Had to put her to sleep on New Year's. Turns out she had cancer and she went downhill fast. I feel sad. But, Christina says, you can, you can feel Christina picking herself up even in the middle of this email. But, it got me to thinking of an episode suggestion. Writers and their pets. Hemingway's Six-Toed Cats. Isaac Dennison's Wolfhounds. Shakespeare's Corgis. Or maybe animals in literature. The Cheshire Cat. Ferdinand the Bull, Jungle Book, you get the idea. Hope your new year started better than mine. Your loyal listener, Christina. Oh, that is very sad. Our heart goes out to Christina. I feel like Christina's cat was kind of our show's mascot, if we had one. We don't have a pet here in the Jack Wilson studio. Oh, don't. (laughs) Don't look so hurt, Gar. You really want to be the pet? You're supposed to be the producer. We're sad too, Christina. Our heart goes out to you. Please accept our condolences. The good news is we are taking you up on the idea of a show about animals and literature in honor of your cat. And we hope that you are finding some brighter days and will continue to find some brighter days ahead. Animals in literature. Christina mentioned a few good ones. The Cheshire Cat, Ferdinand the Bull. I love Ferdinand. But let's talk about some categories first. As I mentioned earlier, I want to save some specifics for our draft with Mike. When did animals first appear in literature and how were they used? How has that changed over time? What does it mean for us as readers today? Those are all good questions. The first one, When animals first appeared is easy. They are as old as literature itself. They go back to the earliest days, to the oral stories and creation myths and fables and folklore and tales of epic heroism. Just as we see animals on cave paintings, we see animals in the earliest literature. That's not a surprise. All that primordial soup that literature and artistry bubbled out of It's all there. Animals are there, too. We started with the Epic of Gilgamesh. That was the first thing we took up. Remember Enkidu? So, for those of you who have forgotten, there's this great hero, Gilgamesh, a hero's hero. And what's the great problem for Gilgamesh at the beginning? Arrogance. That's a running theme in Gilgamesh, which is a story about leadership, among other things. It's a world where the strongest in battle becomes the leader of the society, which makes sense in a warlike world, a world that's struggling to protect itself, a world with many natural enemies. The toughest among you protects you. Power belongs to the toughest among you. Power can be grabbed. Power can be assumed by the strongest. But that can also 
turn you into a bully. Every schoolyard knows exactly how this works. If the toughest, biggest kid around is a nice guy, then fine. Peace and harmony are free to prevail. But if the toughest and biggest kid starts bossing everyone around, acting like a jerk, it's trouble. Well, that's what was happening to Gilgamesh early in the story. So the people complained to the gods, and a goddess formed a rival to Gilgamesh to keep him in check. And what kind of a rival? How do we see a rival to a great hero, a great physical hero like Gilgamesh? Well, he was sort of a man-beast. He was a man who lived in the wild, roaming with the herds of animals, drinking where the animals drank. This apparently is a great Mesopotamian tradition, a wild man living apart, roaming the hinterland, eating grass like the animals. A hunter in Gilgamesh saw this great creature and came back and said, there's a man out there who releases the animals from all of the traps, a little smarter than the other animals, a little more capable, has some composable thumbs. So the hunter warns the society and Gilgamesh as the leader of the society, is called into action. And he and Enkidu fight, and they eventually become friends. But there's always this air hanging about both of them. Civilization versus the wild. What's better? What makes you stronger? What gives you a better life? Those questions are embodied in the two friends. Isn't that... 90% of what we have when we think about animals, (laughs) it's all right there in the very first example. What are the themes that animals can give us? There's more, I guess. Let's talk through some of them. Danger is one. Animals can be frightening. They can be our predators, especially in an untamed world, or if man is pitted against animals, left to his own devices, Left alone in some, due to some circumstance, animals are there reminding you, uh, humbling you. Nature is another great theme. Animals can represent our longing for our return to a natural state, a simpler time, a more genuine world, perhaps, a world not encumbered by the worst that man has to offer. Animals can also be central to the theme of inspiration. They can do things that we can't. How many poets have looked at birds and dreamed of flying or singing? There's many examples of animals triggering this kind of inspiration in authors or in characters within the books. Guilt. We have an obligation to save the animals, to protect them or not eat them, or not treat them cruelly. Many examples of this as well. Animals bringing out our protective side, our nurturing side, our our parenting side. There's another great theme, companionship. Animals bring out the best in people. They can show our tender side. They are our friends. Our beloved pets, whether it's dogs or cats or horses or fish or any number of other animals, they can show that a character has a a need for a friend. Animals 
can be used as a narrative device in other ways as well. Literature likes to show change. It's important for so many books. In some ways, you could say that there's change in every book. It's hard to imagine one that doesn't have change of some sort. Well, what greater change than a metamorphosis? Someone becoming an animal or a part animal or an animal becoming human. We see this in Ovid. We see it in Shakespeare. We see it in Kafka. It's very effective. But that's not the only possibility. It's hard to create distinctive heroes and villains in a gripping, exciting, imaginative way. A way that will excite the reader's imagination as well as the author's. What do you do if you're trying to make your hero or your villain stand out? <laughs> stand out of the crowd. Animals or or beasts can be evil in a way that humans might not be. Or godlike. How do you have a human that truly transcends all other humans? Make them part wolverine or part spider. That would work. Then there's my favorite theme of all, humanity. Animals show us our humanity. They themselves have it, or they cause us to notice something new about ourselves. They inspire us to reflect on some aspect of our humanity in some particularly interesting way. I've talked before about my dream to live in a world with multiple human species, the Neanderthals just around the corner, (laughs) out there on the savannah, checking out the Neanderthals, wondering about their lives in their caves. It's a dream and a nightmare. It's looking into the eyes of someone who's very close to you, close in their way of thinking, close in temperament, close in intelligence, but yet also different but you don't know exactly how. You can connect. You know there is some overlap, but there's not identity. What would it be like to be you? Uh, You can also say that we have that same conundrum with humans. And maybe so. And maybe that's why I like long-term relationships and stories like The Dead, where we are reminded that people always struggle to know, even those whom they think they know best. But with a Neanderthal, as you look into his or her eyes, what's inside there? And the same is true with an animal, a gorilla, a chimp. What are they thinking? Or even a lower species. Ever look into a dog's eyes? Or a cat's? Hmm. Let's read the story. This, I think we'll get at some of this. It'll tell you where I'm coming from. There's a lot we haven't covered yet. We could stick with the very old literature. In West African literature, we see Anansi, the trickster god spider. Aesop's fables are 2,500 years old. The lion and the mouse, the ant and the grasshopper, you know those stories. But you know what? I don't love these as examples, and here's why. To me, they're sort of people in disguise, right? When you give the animal human tendencies, they might as well be human. You could call the lion and the mouse the powerful guy and the less powerful guy, and it would still work. They don't have to be lions or mice to get that point across. It's kind of a wrapping. It's kind of an interesting way to dress up the story, but it's essentially a story about people, human characteristics. And that's the same with all those children's books, too. Winnie the Pooh, for example, he's a bear. Yes, but he's a very human bear. He wears some clothes, he talks, he has human-like desires. Tells us 
something about humans, of course, those characters in Winnie the Pooh, how we want things like honey too much and how that can get us into trouble, and how we are sometimes obstinate like Eeyore or overexcited like Tigger and how we need to behave ourselves or deal with people like that. We recognize ourselves in the types that have been created for us. They're reduced. They're simplified. We see that throughout children's literature. A clever person, well, why not just have a character that's a fox walking around? We could have a greedy one, a greedy animal, an easily bribed animal. can imagine any of our desires or any of our characteristics being the driving force of the wise owl, whatever animal we choose. And then the animals, they don't necessarily stay that reduced. They can build from there. Remember the novelist E.M. Forster talks about flat and round characters. That's the fun of a character like Pooh, is that he becomes kind of round as we see him do different things. We see emotions develop just as we see robots trying to be human in all those science fiction stories. We also don't blame him, though, if he stays flat. He's just a bear after all. Bears can have simple tastes that never change. They can not grow, and it's okay. And all the other characters, too. Animals can be flat characters right from the start, and they can stay flat throughout, and nobody's too troubled by that. Nobody's insulted. A whole landscape of characters that have a single-minded purpose doesn't work the same way when you have real people and adults. Makes the, the narrative seem too simplistic childlike. But when it's animals, it feels childlike because it feels simple and because it feels safe and we know it's not true. And this whole regime of animals in children's literature, whether it's Pooh or whether it's Peter Rabbit or Wind in the Willows or the Jungle Book or the Francis books or Frog and Toad, but I'm thinking especially of Winnie the Pooh. It's all in this soft, warm bath of cuddly animals. It's great for bedtime stories and cartoons and, I don't know, sheets that go on your cribs. We'll definitely need to talk about children's literature at some point, and I love children's literature. Don't get me wrong. I'm drinking my coffee as we speak in my Moomintroll espresso coffee cup. I love children's literature. Loved it as Uncle Wiggly stories. That's another one with those animals. Love Uncle Wiggly. Loved it as a child. I loved it as a parent. I love children's literature now. And if anything tells me that literature is not dying, it's that parents and grandparents still buy books. They still read to their kids, and kids will read like crazy if you give them half a chance to. If you unplug yourself, and if you ask your kids to unplug, they go for books. On a rainy day, in a bed at night before going to sleep, they're still nothing better than a good story. And hopefully the story I'm about to read is a good story, the one I'm about to share with you. It was a key point in my life as I was going through some transitions, some personal transitions, and animals, and one particular animal, played a central role in helping me think through who I was. By that I mean who I had been and who I was becoming. The story is called the offering. And it's coming up after this. 
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. The offering. And then something happened that changed everything. I wish I could start the story that way because that's how it felt when it happened. Startling, vivid, breathtakingly transformative. Even now it makes my heart race. The moment when I looked down and saw what I saw on our front porch and the follow-up moment when I pulled the car out of the garage and saw what was there. But you can't be jolted out of a world without there being a world to be jolted out of. That's an awkward way of saying it, but I'm a storyteller, not an expert in metaphysics. Bear with me. And then something happened that changed everything. We'll get to the something, but first you have to know what the everything was. We were renting a house on a cul-de-sac in northern Virginia the purplest part of a purple state in the section of territory that viewed on a map looks like it was carved out of D.C. Someone probably fought a war over this patch of land once upon a time. Historic battlefields were everywhere, replaced now by highway interchanges and big-box stores. Progress marched along. Even decent old-brick houses like ours were being torn down in favor of ersatz palaces with fake stone facades, their walls rising up from the very edges of the small-sized lots. One nice thing about living in a purple state was that my vote mattered. What was less nice was that my next-door neighbors put up an Obama sign and the kids who lived across the street shot it up with their BB guns. We had left New York City so that our toddlers could play in the backyard. And now this? Young political activists? With guns? I had not moved to the suburbs so my kids could be caught in the crossfire. But we had signed a 12-month lease, so what could we do? We settled in and kept the blinds pulled. Our kids could play in the backyard, away from stray bullets. Since we were renting, there were a few things we had to do to convert the house to something suitable for our family. 
We took down a hammock after it caused too many problems. Hammocks are lovely for grown-ups. They can propel small children halfway across a backyard. We drained the hot tub on the back deck out of similar safety concerns. Inside, there was a pull-down ladder to the attic. I loved the attic. It was huge and roomy, and we could stash plenty of clutter up there. The one downside was that the owners had left a few things of their own. A metal rack holding some coats, a leather jacket, and a wedding dress in plastic, and four or five boxes of trophies and other knick-knacks. I knew I should have been grateful that they had not left those things in the house itself. Instead, I was irritated and tempted to throw it all out. What were we paying for? Damn it, we were renting a house. We were not renting a storage unit. It was an unreasonable position, but there it was. Those items were a reminder that we did not own this house, and I did not like how that made me feel. It was frustrating, for example, that the owners had not trusted us with the remote control to the automatic garage door opener. Every time we entered or exited the garage, we had to park the car, get out, punch buttons on a keypad, and get back in the car. In rain, in snow, in wind, with the kids asleep, with the kids screaming. Every single time it was a pain, and every single time I thought about how temporary and transient our lives were. Twenty addresses in twelve years. It's one thing to live like that when you're poor and living in dirty old apartments. The life of the struggling writer, paycheck to paycheck, meal to meal, crummy surroundings, cold nights spent under the covers on a hand-me-down futon. It's living. It's living free. Hello, Bohemia. But this... Rent at this place was a sizable expenditure, and it was for a house with a finished basement and a backyard. This was a place for grown-ups to live in. And we were grown-ups, whether we liked it or not, because parents have to be. Granted, I was a baffled, confused parent, a father with no idea what fatherhood meant or how to handle it, with zero strategy other than the single tactic that as a 35-year-old man I could present what seemed to small children like wisdom and authority. Eventually, they would figure me out. For now, I faked being an adult. And it worked. Faced with a three-year-old and a one-year-old who believed in me just as they believed in Santa, their optimism and expectations overcoming what was in front of their very eyes, I pulled off a great con— day after day after day. I bluffed them. So then, a grown-up I was, or appeared to be, most of the time. But this house did not make me feel like a grown-up. It felt as if the real grown-ups, the ones with the stuff in the attic, and the ones in possession of the automatic garage door opener, had gone somewhere and left us in charge. On a morning that spring, I went to retrieve the kids, who were playing next door at the neighbors, the Obama sign neighbors, not the camouflage-wearing junior soldiers of fortune. I left via our back door, walked across the deck, and headed for the gate that separated our two yards. Even from here I could admire their house, built to appear in architectural digest, which was literally the wife's dream, or perhaps I should say vision. She had acquired two dogs, 
not because she wanted dogs particularly, but because their butterscotch coats matched the house and would look fantastic in the photo spread. Her husband had told me this one day with a heavy sigh. I nodded as if I understood, but I felt like I was from another planet. Our house had two rooms that had no furniture at all, and a third that only had two beanbag chairs. Maybe Architectural Digest would have a minimalist issue we could get in on. I hopped down the steps and walked around the waterfall that no longer worked, hopefully through nothing my kids had done. And then, as I passed the back of the hot tub, I heard something strange. It sounded like growling. I stopped in place, afraid to move, until I heard what it was. More growling, like someone's loud stomach, except more feral. It was an animal sound there under our deck, behind the lattice woodwork. Now I was afraid not to move. This was not a cat or a squirrel or even a dog. This sounded more beastly. Alarmed, I sped up, race-walking my way across the backyard and into the safety of the neighbor's fenced-in paradise. The noise subsided as I got farther away, and by the time I rang the doorbell, I told myself that I'd been hearing things. Sleep deprivation can do that to you, as all parents know. Inside the neighbor's house, Tammy welcomed me into the kitchen and offered me a glass of wine. It was only two o'clock in the afternoon, but I took one to be polite. She poured out a goblet for me and refilled her own, which did not appear to be her first of the day. Their nanny was supervising the kids, who were rolling down the hill out back. Through the window pane, we could watch them in silence. It was so different from my house, where the four of us basically lived in one of the two rooms that had furniture, and the boys climbed all over me, all day long. I told Tammy about the growling. Her eyes grew wide. I meant to tell you, there's a fox that sits at the end of our street and stares at your house. What? I'm serious, she said. Stares. All day long. An eerie feeling crept over me. We lived on a leafy street, a couple of houses away from a golf course. It felt like we were surrounded by nature. But that was not the same as living in the wild. Growling in the backyard, and now hostile, Vigilant beasts singling us out for scrutiny? Why would a fox be staring at us? Maybe we need to get out of here, I joked. Nature's turning on us. Maybe he knows you're from New York, she said. Ha 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 ha. Ha, I said. Maybe so. She swung her glass in the air. Somehow she had already managed to finish it. Ha 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 ha. After I rounded up the boys, I walked them back to our house on, via the front yard, exposing ourselves to the weaponed mercenaries across the street, but avoiding whatever beasts lived under our back deck. This was not good. Our house was under siege. My wife didn't believe me when I told her about the growl. It's the sleep deprivation, she said. The other day I dreamed I was on a beach in Hawaii. Sand between my toes, ukulele music. Then I realized I was actually awake 
and staring at the checkout lady at Trader Joe's. It was not a good experience. But later that day, my wife heard the growl too, and panic set in among us both. I told her about the fox at the end of the street. Nature's turning on us, I cried. It's not safe here, she said. It's like a Stephen King novel. Wild theories burst out of us. Ancient burial grounds, plantation ghosts, animals pushed out of their natural habitat by development, rising up and joining together and coming back to seek revenge. This was more than we could face. Nature hated us. That seemed clear, logical, inevitable. In fact, I wondered what had taken it so long. Or had nature always hated me, and this was only the first time I had noticed? There were plenty of others out there, individuals and forces, who hated me. Why not nature? A few days later, we had a more reasonable explanation. At twilight, we were greeted by a scrabbling sound coming from our back deck. Look, my wife called from the kitchen. I joined her at the back door. Through the window, we could see a litter of baby fox cubs, six or seven or eight of them rolling around, batting each other with their tiny paws, gnawing at each other's fur, sliding into one another, skidding, testing out their high-pitched growls. They were adorable, but frightening nevertheless. These were wild animals, miniature and cuddly for now, but they were growing, and anyway, their presence meant that the older, more mature, more threatening animals were nearby. Their mother, for example, who apparently had been the growling protector we had heard as we passed by the hot tub, and their father, who must have been the stoic sentry who watched our house from the end of the road. Creatures with weight and girth and serious claws and teeth that could do vicious damage. Creatures who attacked. Hunters. And we had boys, boys who were young and vulnerable and plump. I checked the back door to make sure it was locked, somewhat absurdly, as if these baby foxes would somehow manage to jump up and turn the knob with their tiny paws. But this is the kind of nonsensical thing parents do a hundred times a day out of caution. Then I went to get the boys out of bed so they could watch this special treat a nature special happening in real time, right before our eyes. The boys loved it. It was better than television, which they only got to watch 15 minutes a day anyway. This live-action nature show we let them watch for a full 35 minutes. My wife has rules I do not understand. And we did it again the next night, and for the rest of the week, every night at dusk we came to our kitchen stood silently in the doorway and watched the baby foxes tussle around. It was fun and cute and adorable and it felt safe enough, but I had a nagging feeling throughout the week that this was not sustainable. These things had claws and teeth and looked hostile even when they were playing. My oldest son had deer-in-the-headlights instincts when danger approached and my youngest could barely walk without falling down. Our backyard was off-limits now. It was just not safe. And what about the front yard? 
What if the family of foxes trotted around the side of the house? How could I protect my boys against a marauding litter of foxes and an angry mama fox and the father who would approach from a different angle? We were housebound. Thank God for the garage. We could not have left the house that week without its security. We moved in and out in secret. But what did this mean? We couldn't use the backyard at this house ever again? What were we paying for? But really, what were our alternatives? To trap the foxes? Kill them? I supposed I could have the neighbor kids come over with their BB guns. No doubt they'd relish the task. It was a sickening thought. This was not the country. We were five miles from D.C., if that. We were not barbarians. We were not going to slaughter a litter of baby fox cubs. The neighbor boys across the street would need to find other targets, like windows or recycling bins. My wife called the Humane Society. Inwardly, I congratulated myself for having the good sense to marry someone with such good ideas. They said they couldn't come out, she told me after she hung up the phone, but they expect the foxes to move on. Move on where? I asked. Move on when? Days, weeks, months at most. Months? And until then? My wife smiled. We enjoy the show. It was true. Every night we had a spectacular show. The days grew longer, the weather got better, and we were watching the adorable little cubs grow up. It was educational, but there was something more to it than that. I felt as if there was something shared among us all, two families sharing the same shelter. The fox cubs reminded me a lot of my kids. Active, energetic, roly-poly, a little dumb in figuring out how their bodies worked. I could understand my boys a little better after watching these baby foxes. It was natural to wrestle around. It was normal, healthy. We were all growing together. We shared being alive. Was I so different? Well, obviously, as a standard human, I was more than an animal ever could be. I could think and feel and be afraid. The mama fox growling as we walked by, I was way ahead of her on that. I could worry in ways she could never come up with. The experience, the thoughts, or the raw instinct, or whatever it was, seemed like something I could relate to, but it was fairly one-sided. She could resemble me, but I was miles ahead of her in terms of actually understanding why I was afraid. And the father keeping vigil, standing by and observing as the mother gave birth and suckled the young, developing a bond with them that I could only monitor from a close distance. I thought I could understand that too. But once again, what could that fox know about making the rent, getting the car fixed, trying to find a preschool that didn't serve Oreos right before lunch. Nothing. He just stared at us because he couldn't understand anything further. Dumb instinct. No intelligent thoughts. That was my first bit of understanding, my preliminary analysis. It made me soften toward these foxes. Nature didn't hate us. Nature was trying to be us. And then something happened that changed everything. Now 
were really at that point. One bright, cool morning, I opened the front door to retrieve our newspaper. Something was on our porch, next to the paper, right where we would see it. It was a dead bird. Was a hapless thing, mashed, twitching, killed but still warm. My first thought was the neighbor kids. Had they shot this thing out of the sky, smashed it up, and deposited it on our front porch? Were they that cruel? We didn't have an Obama sign in our front yard. Why? Why? What had we done? I looked for drops of blood or other clues, footprints in the yard, a flash of metal behind the parked cars, boyish laughter in the morning air, some other sign, but nothing. I glanced at the cul-de-sac. All was quiet. Beyond the fence, an electric golf cart zoomed past in near silence. Then all was still again. And yet, suddenly something made me shiver. He was there, watching. The fox, my fellow father, he was watching me. I could feel it. With my mind racing, I finished up breakfast, scrubbed three faces, brushed three sets of teeth. I got our traveling army's worth of gear ready and finally loaded up the boys in our vehicle. Finally, I backed the car out of the garage and stopped in the driveway. I opened the door and got out to punch numbers in the keypad. As always, I moved quickly, trying to get the door closed before any foxes or neighbor kids could sneak into our inner sanctum. But today, after I opened the car door, I stopped and stared. There on the driveway, right where I always stood to enter the numbers into the keypad, was another dead bird. Two dead birds in one morning, in the two places I always stand. Someone, something, had scouted me, knew where I would be, and had sent two messages exactly in the place I would be most likely to receive them. Now I was sure that this was not the work of the neighbor kids. This was from the fox. A message for me. But what? I know you watch my babies. Don't mess with them. Take this as a demonstration of what I can do. I shuddered. It was mafia-like, a horse's head in the bed. But as I backed out of the driveway and glanced again at the cul-de-sac, a second thought occurred to me. Maybe it was an act of gratitude. Your house is protecting my family. Apologies for the inconvenience. Here's food. I know it's not what you usually eat, but it's all I have to give you. Please accept it with my thanks. Maybe it was both. An act of gratitude and a sign of strength? Was that what offerings were? I did not know how I could ever know, but it hardly mattered. Either message was human-like. If our roles had been reversed, if it were my kids, 
so dependent on the care of others, I'd have wanted to do the same thing. I was sure of that without even knowing exactly what that meant. All day at work, I felt odd trying to sort through my thoughts and feelings. I had never communed with an animal mind in quite the same way. Before, when I felt a shared experience with these foxes, I felt as though they had stumbled into behavior that mirrored my own, though in a more primitive way. Their minds weren't as developed as mine, but their instincts made their behavior resemble mine. They became human-like. If there was a comparison between us, it was aspirational on their part. They could never think like me. They could only marvel at how intellectually advanced I obviously was. This was different. This was an intellectual move on the fox's part that I myself did not quite understand. This was a fox, a beast, an animal, thinking through some issue in a way that I could not fathom. A growl or a stare might be instinctive. This had more behind it. This had planning and acquired knowledge and intention. This had thought and care. This was a deeper mind at work, drawing upon a kind of understanding and assumptions about communication that made me shiver. I was floored by the complexity of it, as if there were an entire animal world, the inner mental life of animals, that had suddenly been revealed. Something was connecting me and the fox. I recalled how disorienting it was to be a new parent, trying to protect my family, knowing how dependent I was on others, and how much I depended on a few basic things like thin walls. That winter a storm had raged through our area, snowing us in and cutting off power, and for hours we may as well have been alone on the prairie in the nineteenth century, forced to survive for the night in the back of a covered wagon. I still felt the anxiety of that night, wondering how we would survive, if I had done all I could to make sure that we would. The fox had had his world undermined too, only it was undermined permanently. His home in the wild did not exist anymore, and he lived among humans in a way his ancestors had never needed to. Each of us, the fox and I, were adapting, doing our best. The compulsions of fatherhood transcended our circumstances. I was the fox. The fox was me. Our families needed us. We fought to survive. The generosity and hostility and fear, all that was part of it. We would both do whatever we could so that the young creatures in our care could play and grow and survive and thrive. And the fox had thought through this all and had done something about it, just as I spent my days. Both of us the same, him outside, me inside, thinking through, thinking through, thinking through. In a few weeks, the foxes did move as the Humane Society had predicted. A few weeks after that, we did the same, which everyone who knew us had predicted. Once again, we packed up our lives. As I piled books into boxes and threw out lesser artworks, I thought about how nothing is permanent, including ourselves, at least our bodies anyway. What does that mean? 
It seemed to mean that all we could do was to feel whatever animated us, call it spirit, call it life force, call it a soul, to try to feel it as it expanded, and to try to make that happen even more than it naturally would, to push out and share whatever energy we had with the world. Emotions are ephemeral, yet somehow they last longer than things or bodies. How did that work? Was there some pool of emotion that could somehow be added to? Some floating, invisible storehouse of abstract feelings and ideas? It did not seem to me like time or individual thoughts ever really went away. But how did they last? Where did the past go? How did memories work when they weren't residing in people's minds? How did emotions continue beyond the instant in which they were discharged into the air? Maybe their effects would exist, would continue on in the world as the world moved forward, like canyons being carved out of rivers and rain, or those stones in tourist caves that become smooth and polished by hands rubbing them. Are emotions and impulses and moods and feelings like that too? Do they exist somewhere, exist in the form of the impressions they've made? Do they disappear forever, or do they live on in a chain, transferred from person to person, from animal to person, from animate to inanimate, or vice versa? We ascribe that power to love. If you give it away, you get more back. You make the world a better place, somehow. There's karma. There's a cosmos. There's something that keeps track. There's something that's changed for the better. And that's a nice thought. But there's more than just love. There's anger and cruelty and hate and greed and manipulation and everything humans can feel. There's fear and concern and tender expressions of shared feelings. And... There are offerings to something larger than ourselves. There are those too. That's how I view it now. That's the only way I can make sense of what I felt when I saw what the fox had done, those two gifts he had given me. It's this, that in sharing with the world and emotion, in drawing connections and living with the unexpected, in pushing and challenging and feeling everything there is to feel to the greatest extent possible, we realize we have more than love to share, just as a chord has more than one note and a palette more than one color. In connecting with the world, with all the humans and all the objects and all the animals, whether it's my two little boys thrilled by the merry band of cubs on the deck or my own locked eyes, with the proud and lonely father at the end of the street, in all of that emotion pouring out of us and pouring out of everything, there aren't just bodies and objects churning through the world like the mechanism of a clock. And it's not just love driving us all. There's more. There's more. There's more. There's not just love, but life. And it doesn't go away. It's there even when it isn't. It's there. It's there. It's always there. It's always there. And it will be forever. It's there. <laughs>
episode of the history of literature what are your favorite animals in literature let me know at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com that's j-a-c-k-e wilsonauthor at gmail.com and i can get a head start on mike i am hoping to win our friendly competition my thanks to everyone human and non-human alike for joining me today we'll be back soon with a look at gertrude stein and with part two of our look at animals in literature and many, many more wonderful episodes coming in this new year. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.